Books and movies have been written on the theme of jailbreaks probably for the last 100, 150 years. <clears throat> when I was an early teen, although it seemed like ancient history, World War II was just 20 years in the past. Isn't that amazing? The events of 9-11 are more recent than when I was a kid and World War II. I read the accounts of POW camps in things like The Great Escape, written about the German camp Stalag III, and, and one of my favorites, the Colditz story about the supposedly escape-proof castle in Germany, and all of the really bad, I'm read good, uh, American and British airmen who were captured, who would not just sit in their prison camps, but repeatedly escaped, would eventually be sent to the Colditz Castle. It was an imposing castle sitting above a large tributary to the Elbe River. It was considered to be escape-proof. You could not get out of Colditz Castle. Some people did. I don't think there's ever been a, a jail that was completely uh, escape-proof. But all these intrepid American and British aviators are sent to this jail because they cannot escape from it. The only possible prison that it was never escaped from was Alcatraz. It sits in the middle, as you probably know, in the middle of, of San Francisco Bay. And the waters of San Francisco Bay are cold, so they're hard to swim against. But worse than that, twice a day in San Francisco Bay, the tide is either rushing out underneath the um, Golden Gate Bridge, in which case, if you're trying to swim it, you end up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean out near the Farallone Islands, or it's rushing in and you end up somewhere near Sacramento if, if you survived. But uh, it is possible that two people escaped from Alcatraz. Possible. They don't know for sure. Their bodies were never found in the bay, and there was a reported sighting of one of them at one time. But they were never found. Because you see, when you break out of jail, okay, there's something everybody does. For the World War II soldiers, they would seek out partisans that were on their side and try to make it to Switzerland. For criminals breaking out of jail in the United States, you disappear the best you can and try never to be seen again. Just recently, probably in the last year or two, a man who, was, who escaped jail, and I don't think it was for something hugely, you know, not like murder or something, but he had escaped 45 years ago, moved to like Idaho, assumed a new identity, lived a spotless life, uh, got pulled over for a traffic citation. The warrant turned up and he was returned to jail. You try to disappear when this happens. Today we're looking at the um, first of three, and I'll call them jailbreaks, but we'll see that perhaps that's the wrong term. One of the first of the three jailbreaks recorded in Acts. And when I say I probably shouldn't call this one a jailbreak, nobody was actually trying to get out of jail, okay? It just sort of 
happened. That's, you know, probably the best way for a jailbreak to happen. But like I say, the word jailbreak speaks of a desire to get out of those circumstances and moreover to stay out. People who break out of jail run and they hide to stay out of jail, usually. Last week we covered Acts 5, 12 through 16. To recap, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from, around, from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now this did not escape the notice of the leaders of the Jews, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the high priests. Today we'll cover verses 17 through 25, a big chunk for us, and I'll read the whole thing and then we'll go back through it. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent them to the, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard the heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Before we even start dissecting this passage, there are a couple, couple things that should be noted. In Luke's previous book, The Gospel of Luke, It was the scribes and Pharisees who were disrupting Jesus' ministry. We'll see a little later in this passage that the Pharisees and the person of Gamaliel were a moderating influence on the Sadducees. So what's the difference between between Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry? Why the difference? Well, Jesus' ministry took place out in the countryside in Galilee, sometimes in Samaria. It was the Pharisees who had authority in those areas. The Pharisees and the scribes were the teachers in the synagogue. They were the ones who were interfering with Jesus then. Therefore, it was the Pharisees who figured to lose position from Jesus' popularity with the people. But when Jesus' ministry moved to Jerusalem... At the time of his final Passover, which we know is the Last Supper, it was the Sadducees that faced being displaced. 
as leaders of the Jews. Thus they became enemy number one. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Sadducees plotted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Bethany, the hometown of Lazarus, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, was two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, It was on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, uh, where the Garden of Gethsemane was. So when we hear in the uh, story of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, when it says, you know, he went up to the Mount of Olives to pray, he was outside of Jerusalem, halfway already to Bethany. So anything that happened in Bethany was important to the Sadducees because this was their, uh, their area of control. Being so close to Jerusalem, it was under the sway of the Sadducees. And as I said, this explains the antagonism of the Sadducees towards Jesus. The other thing of note here is that on cursory glance, that the arrest of the apostles just seems to be another harassment. In fact, you know, I sort of said, oh, we're going to get into them being harassed by the um, authorities again. But actually, if you look at it, this isn't, we're seeing a continual escalation of persecution of Jews, of Christians, I mean. At the beginning, we see Jesus taken out, murdered by the Sadducees, who thought that they had solved the problem. Because after all, the disciples ran away. The only disciple who even went to Jesus' trial was John, who was wealthy and had position through his family in the community. But everybody else fell away. We know famously what Peter did. The Jews tried to handle God's work in Israel by the trial and execution of Jesus. Then... Then the unexpected happened. God reversed both the verdict and the execution of Jesus. He he said, no, that isn't going to happen here. By raising Jesus from the dead, suddenly the movement that the Sadducees thought that they had crushed suddenly came back to life. With Peter and John both healing and teaching in the temple itself. So the authorities put on the pressure arresting John and Peter and ordering them not to preach in the name of Jesus. Well, that doesn't work. So we'll see here that they now arrest all the apostles. It's not just Peter and John that are arrested. All the apostles are now arrested by the Sadducees. This continual escalation by the authorities will lead eventually to this toning of Stephen, and then the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem by Paul and later on his basically letter of Mark to go out and persecute all the Christians in Israel. So that brings us to verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, and we'll stop right there, The problem with translations is sometimes a word in one language while translated into another may not accurately reflect the meaning in another language. Jealous here is undoubtedly, and I'm not saying it's not a good translation, it's undoubtedly 
the word that was used in the Greek. But nowadays, we don't often say that someone is jealous of their position. I mean, we can, and I have heard it. But instead, we might say that they were worried about their position in the community. They were fearful of their position in the community. I think um, the Sadducees were not so much jealous of the apostles' healing and teaching ministries as they were fearful of what those ministries could mean to their own positions in the community where where the apostles allowed to continue. I mean, their, their very livelihoods were derived from running the big business of the temple. And trust me, running the temple was big business. Famously, L. Ron Hubbard, who was a science fiction writer, was asked, you know, if he was making good money. And he said, no, you know, the real money is in starting your own religion. And so he ran off and started Scientology. Okay? Uh, this is how... how Deeply, he felt about the big business of religion. Anyway, running the temple was big business. And already this upstart Christianity was making inroads on the population of Jews in Jerusalem. Now, historians give a a large variation of the population of Jerusalem in 35 AD. Uh, They give figures as low as 20,000 permanent residents and as high as about 75,000. Josephus, later on at the time of the fall in 70 AD, claims that a million and a half Jews died in the city, that there were 600,000 residents. People believe that the Roman historians inflated things, you know, uh, probably a lot like our historians tend to do, uh, that they make things seem more important than they are because they were the official uh, historians of, of the Roman Empire. But they suspect that there were between twenty to 75,000 residents of Jerusalem in about the time that this is taking place. We've already seen that at least 4,000 people have become Christians since Pentecost. So many afterwards were becoming Christian, as I pointed out before, that they, we never hear the numbers ever again. They're growing so quickly. So were there 5,000 Christians in, uh, in Jerusalem? Were there 10,000? If there were 5,000, 10% of the town is Christian. If there's 10,000, 20%, one-fifth, one out of every five residents of Jerusalem are already Christians. How long the Sadducees must have wondered until the apostles were more important than they by sheer numbers. The Christians would have to be stopped. So verse 18 says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles, this is verse 18, arrested the apostles, and put them in the public prison. Now the public prison is where the common criminals are. Before, we will notice that Peter and John were arrested, and just placed in custody. But here, they're put in the public prison, and public means just that. People could come by, jeer them. The rulers of the Jews wanted to humiliate the apostles 
to make them an object of derision to all the people of Jerusalem. They made the apostles a public spectacle. However, just like the, uh, with the resurrection of Jesus, God still had a say in the matter. Verse 19 says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and, and said, and we'll stop there again. I know there are tough places to stop, but there's something to be said here. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord always meant God, or the pre-incarnate Christ. Angel of the Lord specifically meant an act of God. However, in the New Testament, if it's Jesus doing something, because he's been alive and he has a name, they always identify him as Jesus. So this is an act of God. We don't know who performed it except to be consistent. It wasn't Jesus, because when Jesus does appear, it says Jesus. So the angel of the Lord... The working of God opened the prison doors and brought them out. And then it says, and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So go stand in the temple does not have the meaning of go stand there in the temple. It does not mean stand there. It has the meaning of stand firm. It means stand your ground against the Pharisees. Richard Longnecker says that dogged steadfastness on the apostles' part was required in the face of the Sadducees' opposition. It says to, quote, speak to the people all the words of this life. That was from the Longnecker translation. This this translation says, of this new life. Because Christianity was a new life. It was something new that had never been seen in the world before. And the angel of the Lord says, go speak to the people of this new life. Either way, the apostles are to speak of salvation. Because life and salvation are both from the Hebrew word, I believe it's pronounced haye. But life and salvation, and think about that. that. That's sort of neat that, you know, when we talk about salvation, we have been given everlasting life. And life and salvation are from the same word. And this is exactly what the apostles do. Verse 21 says, And when they heard this, They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Often when we see somebody going early to the temple, it's for the ninth hour prayers. It's the third hour prayers, which is nine o'clock in the morning. Not in this case. They go at daybreak. Gray dawn. They are in the temple and preaching. So they go to the temple before the crowds get there and begin to teach. Verse 21 says, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So we 
have the high priest and his entourage, uh, probably the other chief priests of the temple. Uh, remember, his son-in-laws were all going to be, or sons or son-in-laws were all going to be high priests at some point. Together with the council, which is Synedrion in Greek, and the Senate, Jerusalem, basically Daryl Box says that those two words are terms that are used, meaning that every leader of every level of Jewish life in Jerusalem were called to deal with this problem. From the lowest to the highest Jewish leader were present, were called to be present for this questioning of the apostles. And they sent servants, uh, attendants, it's called the hyperati, to the prison to bring the apostles. These servants are Levites who report to the temple police. I almost said the capital police. (laughs) To the temple police, same thing. To the temple police. And there is a street ballad from this time that talks about the violence the hyperati would use. The commentator Barrett says, the ballad offers woes for one who experienced the guards' clubs, their whisperings, pen, or fists. These are men to be afraid of. Okay, the men sent to this prison are tough men. Verse 22 through 23 says, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison so they returned and reported. We, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So in the, uh, no nonsense fashion, the guards report exactly what they found. Prison locked and secured. Guards standing at their post and basically the lights were on, but nobody was home. Let's just put, you know, in, in today's words, verse 24 says... When the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And this uh, phrase, wondering what this was come to, uh, was basically, now what? Okay? They're, they, they're, they're dealing with something they weren't planning to deal with. The apostles are gone. The guards are at the door. And basically the chief priest goes... Now what? So they're sitting here wondering how much influence the apostles have. And the thing is, is they wonder the wrong question. The apostles have a lot of influence. But the priests are now worried that the apostles have influence within the Sanhedrin. And we know that, well, you know, looking it up, it does not say either Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus were Sanhedrin. It was suspected they were, but it does not say that they were. So we don't know how much influence Christians had within the Sanhedrin. But the uh, chief priests must have wondered if there were others. And what about among the temple guard or the prison guard? Who let the apostles out of prison is what they had to be wondering because there is no other possibility to the Sadducees. And and do you know why there was no other possibility? Well, I'll get get to that in a second. And it says they were greatly perplexed about these events, wondering what this would come to. 
You can see uh, their heads in their hands at this point. Uh, It says they're perplexed. Uh, In the world of the Sadducees, this can't happen. The guards at the door, the prison locked, and the Sadducees do not believe in divine intervention. They do not believe that God is at work in people's lives. Frankly, as I've said before, the Sadducees don't believe in God. So there, there is no supernatural that can do this. So how could this happen? And now you have to wonder, where would the apostles go? If they left for Galilee, how would the authorities catch them again when they're out and among their earliest sympathizers? Out in Galilee, it's, it's, it's what do they call the Midwest? Jesus country. And I didn't mean that funny. I mean, Galilee was Jesus' country. People in Galilee, where he grew up, where he did most of his ministry, loved Jesus. And then one last confusing thing happens. Verse 25. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Okay. The chief priests didn't see that coming. When people escape jail, they run. They hide. They, they pull their fedoras down low over their face when they pass authorities to avoid being recognized. They specifically do not go where they have been ordered not to go and preach what they have been ordered not to preach. This is not what you do, but here they are standing up to the priests and teaching in the temple as the angel of the Lord commanded them to do. Now, to my original proposition, was this actually a jailbreak? You know, the apostles did want out of prison. You know, when I said they didn't want out of prison, not to the extent... uh, They knew God was going to do something. But they don't want to be in prison. Nobody wants to be in prison. When Paul was imprisoned, he didn't want to be imprisoned. The apostles did want out of prison, but they did nothing to facilitate it. Great amounts of planning went into the escape attempts from Alcatraz, for instance. Some type of boat or flotation devices were obtained, and I've read some of these accounts, and they're quite ingenious. Guard patrol schedules were observed and marked down so you knew when the guards were going to be going past. There was only one good place to launch from Alcatraz Island to get off of it. Meteorological data such as wind and tides were calculated to uh, to account for the drift that they were going to have. Food was hoarded. And all this before their escape attempt was made. And still it was not known if any of the escapes were successful. Or that World War II... uh, a prison camp at Coldest Castle. Only a small handful of the most determined allied POWs made it out. And these men were extremely clever. They were all pilots. They, a lot of them had aeronautical training after the war. It was discovered that they built an entire glider and hidden it in the rafters of the castle, awaiting a chance to escape, but the war ended before they could use it. So somebody made a scale model of what they had designed launched it and discovered that not only would it clear the river Elba, it would have sailed several hundred yards 
to a meadow outside of town. They never got a chance to use a boy. Anyway, now that's an escape. But the apostles expended none of that effort. The angel of the Lord simply opened the prison doors and brought them out. We don't know exactly how that happened. Okay? How did they... Just were the eyes of the guards closed? We don't have that told in respect to the guard that was posted. The chief priests were not wrong to suspect an inside job because because it was an inside job. Or maybe it was an outside job. Or perhaps it's best to describe it as an omnipresent job because God is everywhere. When God acts in the physical world, it doesn't matter what's inside or outside. And the Sadducees should have known that, but they did not believe God interacts in human affairs. But they should have. You know, we're less than a month away from celebrating an event that the chief priests and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees were intimately familiar with and had all gone through Resurrection Sunday. They were all there for it. After they murdered Jesus, these men recalled that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. So they went to Pontius Pilate and asked him to provide a guard for the tomb. Right? Pilate cryptically said, and we're just going to cover this quickly, said, you have a guard, go make it secure. So there is a debate what exactly Pontius Pilate did. We know what he said. We don't know what he did. The debate is, did Pilate give the high priest a Roman guard? Or is what he said referencing the temple police? Because they do have Jewish guards here. Now, if it was the temple police that were guarding the tomb, and there are a few reasons to think that it might have been. Since I am one of those Reformed Baptist pastors who are not against giving holiday messages, I'll probably get into this more on Resurrection Sunday. But if it was the temple police, I've pointed out that they were known as thugs. This passage even uh, this passage shows that even through the dead of night, they remained alert at the prison doors. They were not slouches. But if it was a Roman guard, a Roman guard consisted of 16 men. Romans fought in a block. A Roman soldier was responsible for six square feet. Okay? That's two feet by three feet. This was their spot. There were 16 of them. They could defend it. They could defend and not be broken in a 10 by 10 square. And these are the men who are around the tomb. Okay? Now, you might say, well, they fell asleep. Well, if you fell asleep, the person who fell asleep was executed by burning They would start the fire with his own clothes and throw him in. Okay? Sounds pretty bad, so you don't fall asleep, right? 
The other 15 men are also executed. Okay? All 16 in the guard, if somebody fell asleep and Jesus' body stolen from the tomb, would be executed. I'll bet nobody's thought a week. What do you think? Beyond that, well, the, the argument that this was a Roman a guard was that Luke later on says that soldiers were guarding the tomb. The temple guard was not soldiers. It was also closed and sealed with the Roman imperial seal. The pain for breaking that seal was death for whoever broke the seal. Can you see, at the time of the crucifixion, any of the disciples or apostles breaking that seal? I don't. But whoever was guarding the tomb, in the morning it was empty. The soldiers were gone. You know, it says that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. Well, when the chief priests arrived, it was pointed out to them that the stone wasn't just rolled away. It was sort of like picked up and thrown. It was gone. It wasn't where it should have been. These events had taken place just a few weeks before. It was fresh in everyone's mind. Death could not hold Jesus. A tomb sealed by the Roman Empire could not keep him in. A Roman guard could not detain him. And so you sit here and you say, why did the Sadducees and the Pharisees think that a mere jail could hold the apostles? Because when God decides to do something, nobody is going to stop him. And that's our discussion of this event for today. Let's close in prayer.